So, here we are. The covenants. Question of covenants. Um, covenants. What's the old... What's, what's the first two-thirds of the Bible called? Old Testament. Old Testament and the next one-third of it is called the New Testament. And another word for testament is covenant. Hmm. So isn't that interesting that even the Bible we have, in a way, is divided up into Old Covenant and New Covenant. Now, that's kind of a general division. It's not all Old Covenant, because I'm going to say in a few minutes, the Old Covenant, what's called the Old Covenant, doesn't really start till Moses. But, um, but in general, here's kind of a division. But what is a covenant? Well, when you think about this, so God created human beings in his own image, put them on the earth. But how are people going to relate to God? How, are, how is God going to relate to his people? Do you think they'll just make it up as they go along? Or kind of guess? I don't know, maybe God wants us to do this. Maybe God wants us to do that. You think he's going to leave people without any guidance at all about what they're supposed to do? Or do you think he might tell them what he expects? and tell them how he relates to them. Well, in fact, the history of the covenants in the Bible is a history of God telling people how he's going to relate to them, defining the terms of their relationship. All right? And we have come to use the word covenant in other ways. Um, we live in a neighborhood that has, what do you call these things, covenants? The, the, you know, rules about what kind of flowers and trees you can plant and what color gravel you can have in your front yard and things like yeah. What are those called? Well, who's the real? CCNR, what's that? Covenant conditions and restrictions. And when you move into this neighborhood, you freely enter into an agreement that you'll plant only this kind of trees and all this. Anyway, or put your trash out on certain, I don't know, you get all these rules, but they're agreements that define the relationship between you and the neighborhood, right? Um, another, uh, another use of the word covenant, uh, the Bible in Malachi talks about marriage as a covenant. And it's something where a husband and wife come and stand before God and they say, we will do this and we will do this. And the husband says, I'll do this. And the wife says, well, I'll do this. They promise and commit to each other that they'll fulfill certain patterns, certain ways in which they're going to relate to each other. And that's a lifelong covenant uh, between husband and wife. So we use the word covenant in other ways, but um, the primary way that it's used in the Bible has to do with God's definitions of how people would relate to him. And I'm, I'm going to say in a big general category, big general broad brush picture, I'm going to say, first, there was a covenant of works between God and Adam and Eve, and he told them how they would relate to him. And then, later, there was a covenant of grace, that is, where there'd be forgiveness, because they didn't fulfill the covenant of works. And the promises that indicate the covenant of grace really begin to be specified at the time of Abraham, Genesis 12, 15, 17, and then it stretches through different forms of that overarching covenant of grace from Abraham, 
Moses, David, and then in the new covenant with Christ. Another way of saying that is there are several covenants in the Old Testament, Abraham, Moses, David, and then there's the new covenant in Christ, and you can organize it different ways if you want to, but we want to look at those different forms of the definitions of how God related to people. So uh, a covenant is an unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the condition of their re- conditions of their relationship. It's divinely imposed. Man agrees, but God dictates the terms. So um, God says, Here, here's how it is. This is how I'm going to relate to you. And there isn't any negotiation. Oh, would you change this or that? No, it's just God says, this is, this is what it is, and if you act this way, I'll act this way, and if you do this, I'll do this. And if you don't, I won't. And it's unchangeable. The covenant can be superseded or replaced by a different covenant, but it's not changed or altered once it's established. The first covenant was the covenant of works in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. There's only one verse in the Bible that actually calls this relationship a covenant, but I'm going to say even though there's only one verse that calls it a covenant, There is a lot in the Bible, uh, in the early chapters of Genesis, that define the relationship verbally, uh, where God says, this is how I'm going to relate to you. I think, I think the elements of the covenant are there. So Hosea 6-7 is the only verse that talks about this, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. And all English versions that I looked at translate it this way. There's some technical argument about Um, whether this should be like Adam or like man, but I think like Adam is the best choice and the best decision here. Also, Romans 5, 12 to 21, there is a parallel that's drawn at some length between Adam and Christ as heads of the people they represent, and they're fulfilling, I think, conditions of two covenants, and there's a parallel. So I think that it's right to say there was a covenant of works in the Garden of Eden, and here were the essential parts of that covenant. There was a clear definition of the parties involved. It was God and uh, Adam and Eve that he had created. There was a legally binding set of provisions that stipulated the conditions of their relationship. So God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So he was telling them, if you're going to relate to me in a way I want you to relate to me, then this is what you have to do. Be fruitful and multiply Fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then in further specification, we find Genesis 2, 16 to 17, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so... There, um, there's a definition of the terms of the relationship. I think there were promises of blessings, at least implicit in these commands. Um, Implicit blessings uh, promised in terms of life. That is, uh, if you don't, it's implicit. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. Well, the opposite is, if you don't eat of it, it's implied that you'll live. And I think live means live in blessing and in fellowship with God. So there's, uh, there's um, life promised and fellowship with God, assumed he's speaking with them, dominion over the earth, because he says, 
fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish and the birds and every living thing. And this subdue means make it useful for you to enjoy. And so I think they would have, the, the promise was if they did that, they'd enjoy all the blessings and the wealth and the richness of the earth. And um, many descendants, that is, there'd be a, there's implied a promise of uh, children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, because be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Well, that's a lot of children and grandchildren uh, and great-grandchildren. There's an implied uh, promise, if they would follow in the covenant, of great blessing in terms of a, a wonderful family of descendants. So there's, there are blessings implied. And later statements... Paul talks about uh, the fact that a commandment that can promise life, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. I think he's thinking of later commandments, perhaps, uh, that were more specific. But the idea is that there was an arrangement that God made with the human race so that if human beings were obedient, then there would be a blessing of life. Or Leviticus 18.5, talking about the Mosaic Covenant, keep my statutes and my rules, if a person does them, he shall live by them. I'm the Lord. Now, the problem is nobody obeyed. Adam and Eve didn't, and nobody else did. But there were promises of blessings. And then the condition for obtaining those blessings was specified. That is, they were to fulfill God's commands, to fill the earth and subdue it, and not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So uh, there was a symbol of the covenant, and that was probably the tree of life, um, if they didn't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would partake in the tree of life, or it would be implied they'd partake in the tree of life. Well, no, although that's not specified, and I don't want to insist on that. Um, why is it important to speak about this as a covenant? Because they're in the Christian world, and um, actually probably some of my fellow faculty members coming from a different theological, a dispensational theological background say, oh, I don't think about a covenant in the Garden of Eden. It doesn't... It's only one verse that talks about it, and that one's questionable. But I think, I think it's important to speak about this as a covenant because, um, <clears throat> because a relationship didn't occur automatically between the creator and the creature, but God defined it. And when he defined the relationship, it was an expression of his fatherly love for the man and the woman. And this helps us see the clear parallels between the covenant of works in the Garden of Eden and the subsequent covenants. And I think in a lot of senses, the covenant of works is still in force. Um, not exactly the same way, but Paul implies that perfect obedience to God would lead to life. Romans 7.10, the commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. And um, when he talks about obedience to further commands specified by Moses, he says, the person who does the commandment shall live by them. And more than that, the punishment for a covenant of works, that is, if you obey God perfectly, you'll have eternal life with him, and the punishment is still in force, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, uh, and so in a sense, um, that, that, is still, that is still in effect. And then, I think in this sense, it's still in effect, in that Christ perfectly obeyed the covenant of works. That is, he fulfilled every demand of righteousness, not just the ones that God had given to Adam and Eve in the garden, but also the subsequent ones that came in the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses. So Romans 5, 18 to 19, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, that's Adam. So one act of righteousness, that means Jesus' life, leads to justification, life and death, leads to justification and life for all men. 
by the one man's obedience, the many... So, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. That's the first covenant in, in the garden, covenant of works, Adam and Eve. So, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. It looks like Christ fulfilled that. So, um, so, I think it's right to say that that covenant, in a sense, is still in force. However, uh, it's a little bit different because... Um, the way God administers these covenants changes and we don't have the specific command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and we have a sinful nature and we're not able to fulfill the covenant of works on our own. And for Christians, Christ has already fulfilled this for us. And so if we would think of ourselves as obligated to earn God's favor by obedience, we'd be cut off from the hope of salvation. Paul says, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it's written, cursed be everyone who doesn't abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. No one is justified before God by the law. The righteous shall live by faith. So there's something else coming in here. So that's, um, that's the covenant of works in the Garden of Eden. I don't know if you want to ask about that before I go on or talk about that. If you obey, you will, you will live. Okay. Then there's another one, and I'm gonna, I almost wrote in the margin here, optional. Point B. Um, in the in the 17th, in the 17th or 18th centuries, theology professors began thinking, "Oh, there's a covenant in the Garden of Eden. There's a covenant that defines the relationship in uh, between God and Adam and Moses and David, and then in Christ and the New Covenant." Oh, well, if you define a relationship by having an agreement of the certain conditions, then maybe we should think that though plan between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to bring salvation to the human race, we could even maybe call that a covenant. And I think there's some validity to that argument, but the word is never used. And of course, it's between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not between God and his creatures. So I'll go over this really quickly, but sometimes people speak of this as a covenant. Among the members of the Trinity, for the Son of God to become a man and be our representative and obey the demands of the covenant of works on our behalf. The Father agreed to give the Son a people whom he would redeem. That's you and me. To send the Son, accept him as a representative of the redeemed. And John 17, Jesus speaks about accomplishing the work that the Father gave him to do. Um, and on the part of the Holy Spirit, uh, an agreement to fill and empower Christ to carry out his ministry on earth. So um, the Son of God here, I didn't put that, I didn't organize that outline right, I guess. Ah. I missed a point on the PowerPoint. It's on your outline. B, for the son to live as a man under the Mosaic law and be fully obedient. And then uh, for the Holy Spirit to fill and empower Christian to Christ and then apply the benefits to us. Uh, the word covenant says, well, this was a voluntary undertaking by God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'm not going to spend any more time on that. I just put it in as a, hmm, some people think of that as a covenant, but I'm going to go on. Not the main point I want to talk about. Okay, now we get to the big, the big topic. And that is the covenant of grace. That is, Adam and Eve did not fulfill the covenant. They disobeyed. They didn't fulfill the covenant of works. So God instituted another way that they would relate to him. And it's the covenant of grace. The parties would be God and the people whom he would redeem. Ultimately, Christ would be the mediator. And in the Old Testament, 
People had to look forward to Christ, but he was still the only true mediator. The condition of this covenant is not works. It's not don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The condition instead is to begin the covenant, it's faith alone, faith in the work of Christ the Redeemer. In the Old Testament, they looked forward to it. Now we look back to it. But the condition of continuing in this covenant is obedience to God's commands. We'll talk about that more later. The promise is eternal life with God. Um, and you get that promise hinted at back in the Old Testament and then fulfilled in the New. And the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament was circumcision and the many ceremonies. And uh, in the New Testament is baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, this large, overarching covenant of grace takes various forms, various forms. The essential elements have remained the same, but the specific provisions vary. And sometimes these are called various covenants. Now, Jamie. Um, you're saying that the circumcision is a sign of the covenant in the Old Testament. Yep. Uh, and that, conversely, baptism is in the New Testament. Yep. Um, okay, so my problem here is that in the Old Testament, uh, I believe circumcision was required, um, well, I know it was required, you know, basically eight days after birth, whereas baptism, as shown in the New Testament, unless we want to take a beta baptist view, which I reject, um, is to be done after someone has already believed. So it doesn't matter who you are. If you're Jew, you're circumcised, period. Uh, whereas, you know, and you could be an apostate Jew, so be circumcised when you're eight, eight days old. Um, but as baptism is only for those who have accepted Jesus Christ, so I see that as something of a disparity. It's not yep. like a continuing yep. covenant. There was a distinct. Yep. There are differences. But yeah, there was a distinct there a lot of separation of covenants there, I believe. Well, uh, plus that I, I, I would agree with your, your dispensational colleagues in saying, D don't call a covenant what God has not specifically named a covenant in the Bible. That's a separate question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, there are differences. And um, uh, yes, circumcision was given to everyone physically born in the Jewish, among the Jewish people, or even uh, sojourners brought in among them, um, or slaves uh, in their household. But in the New Testament, the membership is spiritual and voluntary. It's not a physical descent. So it's people who are born again or born anew. Wasn't it still more of a spiritual relationship in the Old Testament? I mean, because we see that there's just because you were actually circumcised, circumcised doesn't, didn't exactly mean you were following. It was just right. that's because but you were. It was a sign of you entered you got, the society. You got the sign by being physical descent, but you don't in the New Testament. Right. That's the difference. Okay. So various forms of the covenant. First covenant with Abraham about 2000 BC and you know I see these tests that people give to Christians in churches can you put in chronological order Abraham David Moses and Jesus <laughs> or something like that and people get these wrong so um, I, I thought I'd just put some dates here uh, Abraham is about 2000 BC and then I'm going to talk about Moses later and then David later just to see that we're talking about these in sequence Abraham, 
There are parties to the covenant. There's a condition of the covenant or conditions. There are promises, and there's a sign. And this covenant to Abraham is really important for us because the New Testament is going to say we are children of Abraham, heirs, according to the promise. So when we hear these promises, we ought to think, now there's a way in which we're going to inherit these and get the blessings of them. So here we go, the promise. And I'm going to look at Genesis 12, and then Genesis 15, and then Genesis 17. Genesis 12, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. Now, see, there's an echo already of uh, Adam and Eve filling the earth and subduing it, right? A lot of descendants. Now, here I'll make of you a great nation. This is going to be a lot of descendants for Abraham. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So there's, descend, there's, there's a great nation of descendants, a great nation, and there's a promise of blessing, and then bring, bring blessing to the, whole, to the whole earth, all the families of the earth. And then there's faith as a condition of the covenant. This we come, uh, it's stated explicitly in Genesis 15. And God brought Abram, Abram outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So here Abraham believed the Lord. That was faith by which he entered into this, uh, or became a partaker, uh, an inheritor of this covenant. And then uh, there are further things specified in Genesis 17. So when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, and now here's a condition of continuing in the covenant, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant, and here are the parties, between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. There's a restatement of the families, great number of descendants, great people. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. And now here comes a promise. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I make you, will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. So there's a promise of great descendants coming to Abraham. And I will establish my covenant. And now it was, here the parties were between me and you, but then it's expanded. I will, expa I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. And here's another element of the promise, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you. And here's another part of the promise, the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan. I will be for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. So just as if Adam and Eve had continued in obedience, God would have had fellowship with them as their God. Here now there's a promise that he will be God to them and to your offspring after you. And you shall be my people and I will be your God. That's a repeated promise that there would be implied 
fellowship with God as the greatest of the blessings of the promise. And then just as God had said to Adam and Eve, uh, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. So there's a promise of the richness of the earth and the dominion over the earth. So here's a promise of the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, promise of a, of a place to dwell in. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant between, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Now here's the sign of the covenant given. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant. Explicitly is called that. Between me and you, he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or brought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, shall surely be circumcised. So the elements of the covenant are there. The parties is God and Abraham, and then God and Abraham and all his descendants after him. The condition, well, first, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. There's faith. But then continuing would be walk before me and be blameless. And the promises, well, promise of the land, promise of a great people, promise of blessing, that God would bless him and bless all the nations of the earth through him. And those who bless him will be blessed. And those who curse him will be cursed. So that's the covenant under Abraham. Okay? Ready? We're set to go to another one? Don't want you to go to sleep. Okay. Here we go. Mosaic Covenant. Now we're, we skip forward approximately 1440 B.C. The Mosaic Covenant. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and the people answered with one voice and said, All the words the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain. What mountain is this? Mount Sinai. Okay, people have come out of Egypt. They've wandered through the desert, and they've come to Mount Sinai, and, this, and, and God has appeared to them in the mountain, and in Exodus 20, he gave them the Ten Commandments. And then there were further stipulations after that, further details. And then Moses built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and 12 pillars, according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent the young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And when they sacrifice these peace offerings, there's blood that's spilled from the animals. What does Moses do with the blood? Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he threw against the altar. That's fine. You don't mind that. <laughs> then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. And said, Behold, the blood of the covenant the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So whoosh, he's throwing the blood out onto the congregation. So it's a symbol that a life has been taken. And it's in a way a promise that if you break the terms of the covenant, your life is forfeit. A life has been given there. So there's a, a binding nature of the covenant. Uh, and... Uh, the people make this agreement, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. And these words of uh, uh, stipulations of the law that God has given, it's called the Book of the Covenant. And later, 
Moses was with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are the summary. We spent two years in this class looking at the Ten Commandments and how they summarized later provisions that were more explicitly detailed in the books of Moses as other provisions of the covenant. But they can be just summarized in the Ten Commandments, and they're called the words of the covenant. They define the relationship between God and his people. Deuteronomy 4.13, he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on the tablets of stone. And then where are these tablets kept? They're kept in the Ark of the Covenant. Of the covenant. Because the tablets of stone are put into this gold-covered box that the people carry around, and it, it, it remains there in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. They set out from the Mount of the Lord three days' journey, and the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord went before them three days' journey to seek a resting place for them. So that's the Mosaic Covenant, and the words are the Ten Commandments and then the more explicit details of the covenant that are in the rest of the law. The characteristics of the Mosaic Covenant are that it has many detailed laws and sacrifices and festivals. If you sin in this way, you make this sacrifice, and every periodically every year you make this sacrifice, and you have this festival, and here are the food laws, and you can eat this, and you can't eat that, and you can have this kind of clothing, you cannot have that kind of clothing, you can plow with this kind of animal, not with that kind of animal, this is a clean animal, this is an unclean animal, and this is what you can plant, and this is what you can't plant, and you have to do this festival, and this festival, and this festival, and this is how much you have to give to the Lord. All these detailed rules and sacrifices and festivals, but... The law in itself could not empower obedience. And so the people failed to keep it again and again. Yet there were elements of grace in this covenant. I don't want us to make the mistake of thinking nobody from the Mosaic covenant is ever going to be in heaven or was ever saved because uh, there was yet uh, a requirement of faith. The Abrahamic covenant was still in force and the requirement of faith to be a member of the people of God was still in force, and Moses was certainly one of the heroes of the faith, and in the sacrifices themselves, there were promises hinted at, the promise of a greater Lamb of God who would come and take away the sin of the world. And so the sacrifices hinted at, at forgiveness and hinted at a promise of a Messiah to come in many, many wonderful ways, and the festivals hinted at that too. Okay, I'm just going to spend a minute on the covenant with David. God renews the covenant and gives more specific promises to David that have to do with a kingdom and a king on the throne and ruling over the throne in the covenant with David. And this is about 1,000 B.C., 1,000 B.C. or so. It's a continuation of the covenant with Abraham, but it's called a covenant especially in Jeremiah 33. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken. So there it's specifically talking about a covenant with David, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne. Now earlier, God had promised, in 2 Samuel 7, God had promised that David would have always have a son to reign on his throne. And my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers, as the host of heaven cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant, and the Levitical priests who minister to me. So there's a similarity, a promise of great offspring. Done. 
Hold on just a second. We'll get a microphone over there. Are, are we to be looking for a sign in each one of these covenants? Well, circumcision continued as a sign. Abraham and uh, circumcision was still required in the Mosaic era and in the Davidic era. Well, I was uh, just wondering if, the, if in the Mosaic covenant, if the sign there isn't blood. Maybe. I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure. If you, I mean, you may be more familiar with the details of how that would be counted a sign, but I, I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Anything else that I don't know? <laughs> Jamie? Well, can we say that the, uh, the sprinkling of the blood on the people is more of a uh, forward-looking symbol to us being covered in the blood of Christ? Yeah. Is the sprinkling of the blood on the people looking forward to being sprinkled with the blood of Christ? I think so, because Hebrews 9 and 10 picks it up and looks at it that way. But for them, uh, that, was just, that would be looking forward by faith. For them, it was a life has been given, and it's taking the... by kind of coming in the midst of that, saying that there's death that is uh, undertaken as a penalty for breaking it. Okay, good. Okay, Mosaic Covenant. Okay. Now, so you go through the period of the Old Testament. You've got faith, the covenant with Abraham and faith, and yet there's obedience for continuing. You've got sign of circumcision, land, the people, the blessing. And you got the Mosaic Covenant and the and the and then Davidic, but now that whole system that the people wonder, especially since the time of Moses, it wasn't it wasn't empowering obedience. It was a huge, elaborate system of laws, but it didn't give people power to obey. So God began to promise that one day there would be a new covenant. And so Jeremiah 31 says, verse 31: Behold, the days are coming declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them, when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So here's what I'm saying. He's not saying I'm going to make a new covenant to replace the covenant with Abraham. He's saying I'm going to make a new covenant to replace the one that was in place under Moses when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So instead of just having it on tablets of stone, you look at it and you say, oh, I want to obey it, but you don't. God is going to say, I'm going to write it on the tablet of your heart. I'm going to put it within so you've got a desire and the power to live in obedience to it. That's going to be the difference. And I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That promise of fellowship and relationship with God. So God promises someday this would be a new covenant. And just to skip ahead a little bit, I'm going to tell you that this passage from Jeremiah is quoted in Hebrews 8. It's the longest quote of the Old Testament of any writing in the New Testament. This to say that this is fulfilled now in the church. And what's interesting is that this is the promise of the house of Israel and the house of Judah. But the book of Hebrews says we all get in on that. It's applied to all of us. 
So the covenants with Abraham and David, interestingly enough, are never called the Old Covenant. Only the Mosaic Covenant, with all its detailed laws and its ceremonies and circumcision and dietary laws and food laws and festivals and sacrifices, that's called the Old Testament, or the old, that's called the Old Covenant, rather. 2 Corinthians 3.14, talking about the Jews who didn't accept Jesus. Their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. It looks like Paul is saying that the covenant with Moses in particular is the old covenant. And beginning with the covenant with Abraham, the essential elements of the covenant of grace are there, and they remain in force in the new covenant, but they find greater fulfillment in Christ. So the New Testament doesn't say the covenant with Abraham is done away with. In fact, it says we are members of it. And uh, Galatians 3.8, the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise, so we become inheritors of the promises to Abraham. But the fulfillment of this, of course, is in the New Testament, because at Christ's death, a new covenant was established, and we're members of that new covenant. Matthew 26, 28, Jesus says, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So here, now, Jesus' own death, which is foreshadowed in the Lord's Supper, or here's the Last Supper, he says, this is my blood of the covenant. A new covenant is going to be established. Likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, Luke 22:20, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So the new covenant was promised in Jeremiah 31, Jesus saying, is now going to take effect. But listen, this is where, beginning or end of Jesus' life? Say end. <laughs> this is the end of Jesus' life. What does that mean during the Gospels? What covenant is still in place? Hmm? See, see, all during the Gospels, before Jesus' death, they're still living under the Old Covenant. They're still living under the Mosaic Covenant. They've got to follow all those dietary rules and the sacrifices and everything um, until Jesus' death takes place. And then Hebrews 8 says... Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, that's under Moses, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. But he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, and I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's saying it's a new covenant, like, not like the Mosaic covenant. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Now, by first, he means previous one compared to this one. I know that the one to Abraham came before, but it's not absolutely first. It was the first one in terms of the first and second, the old and new here. And the new covenant is coming. And so... This is the covenant that Jesus mediates and he gives us, and it's the covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, but it looks like all of that is expanded to include all of us, not just Jewish people. For this is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. If you, in your heart, have a desire 
an inward desire to live according to the laws of God. And if you in your heart have a Holy Spirit-worked ability to live more and more in conformity to God's moral standards, then the new covenant is written on your heart. See, that, that's us. God's put his law into our minds and written them on our hearts. We're not just rebelling against this outward tablets written on, words written on tablets of stone, but we're conforming in our hearts and longing to conform more in our hearts to the laws of God. And then the promise of fellowship. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Every day when we pray, every day when we worship, we're entering into the blessings of that new covenant because we're knowing God's fellowship with us as his people. So, I mean, these are wonderful, wonderful things that God has given us these rich privileges. And they shall not teach everyone his neighbor and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, as if there were many of them that didn't. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, that is, among God's people. They'll be all expect, expectation, they'll all know him. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. There's fullness of grace in this covenant. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to vanish away. It's obsolete. That means in the new covenant, we don't have to keep all those rules. Circumcision, sacrifice of animals, food laws, dietary laws, all those ceremonies, those are obsolete. So the sacrificial system of the Mosaic covenant foreshadowed the bearing of sin by Christ. And I'll tell you, you know, critics of the Christian faith just, you know, they take the Bible and they say, oh, why don't you obey this? And they read some of these laws from Leviticus or something. And, and just, there's just a superficial, under, a wrong understanding of the Bible. They don't realize that this was temporary for that time, and it's not applying to us anymore. We don't obey it because we're not under that covenant anymore. So, um, uh, you know, why do you play football? It says you're not supposed to touch unclean animals. It's got skin of a pig or, you know, that kind of thing. So it's just kind of foolish objections that, that have a kind of a, a total misunderstanding. Anyway, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. A death has occurred, that's Jesus' death, that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands that are copies of the true things. That is, the high priest went into the holy of holies in the temple in the Old Testament year after year with blood of the sacrifice. But that was just a copy. That was just, that, 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 that was, but Christ hasn't entered into that. Christ has entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places year after year with blood not his own. But he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So Christ fulfilled all those provisions of the Mosaic Covenant and uh, he's redeemed us from that. So now we have far greater blessings. The Messiah has come. It's not just that we're looking forward to, them, to him. He has lived and died and risen, atoning for our sins. He has revealed God most fully to us. Uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. We have beheld his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, in John 1.14. And the new covenant has abolished all the detailed laws about sacrifices and circumcision and dietary laws. We can eat pork and shrimp and, I don't know, whatever you want to. Um, and festivals. We don't have to keep the Day of Atonement and the Festival of Booths and all those things. 
uh, that were part of the Mosaic Covenant. And we don't have to go offer sacrifices of animals and wave offerings and burnt offerings and all that. The New Covenant has abolished all these. In these sacrifices, there's just a reminder of sins year after year, for it's impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. That is, Hebrews 10, 3-4 says these things were just provisional, they were symbolic, they were temporary, and they really didn't take away sins. So, so we don't fulfill them anymore. And then Paul says, and here's the kind of payoff for us, Paul says to the Galatians, you observe days and months and seasons and years, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. In other words, there are some people in the churches of Galatia who are saying, we've got to still keep these Jewish sacrifice, these Jewish uh, festivals and holidays. We've got, to, we've got to have all these special days and, and seasons and years. Paul says, no, you don't have to do that anymore. You're redeemed from that. Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Paul, Paul says, look, I, Paul, say to you, if you accept circumcision, Christ will no longer be of advantage to you. I testify to every man who accepts circumcision. He's obligated to keep the whole law. See, he's writing to people in the churches of Galatia. There were people saying, we've got to keep circumcision. We have to keep the dietary laws. We have to have kosher food. We have to keep the festivals. We have to keep all these regulations. Aren't they God's words? Paul says, no, if you think you're part of that anymore, you accept circumcision, you say you have to be circumcised, you've got to keep the whole thing and don't, and don't try to do that because you will never do it. So you're free from that, and by implication, if you're free from circumcision, you're free from all the ceremonial laws. So Paul says in Colossians 2.16, therefore let no one pass judgment on you with questions of food and drink. No more unclean foods. Or with regard to a festival, no more Jewish holidays have to be kept. Or a new moon or a Sabbath. Those are Jewish provisions. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. God has poured out the Holy Spirit and new covenant power. I'm going to skip over that. He's written his laws on our hearts. We talked about that. And this is the eternal covenant. Okay, that's the end. <laughs> because I want to get done on time. I want to be able to sing. Because Gene tells me it's time to sing. Okay, we've got a couple minutes for question on that. And then, what's your name? Pascal. Pascal. Yeah. So, uh, the question that I guess has bothered me for so long is why? I mean, why have the old covenant in the first place? And ah. why didn't he just have Christ in, in the. You know, why didn't Christ come earlier? Why have all of these elaborate laws and then have send Paul to destroy it all? Okay, Pascal, that's a really. Really good question. Why did God do all these things? The covenant with Abraham, then the covenant with Moses, and then all these years of the Jewish people. Um, I can give you only a partial answer. I think that God gradually works out his purposes over time. And it's his nature to do things progressively and gradually. So we, as he unfolds his purposes, we see more and more of his excellence and his glory. So there was, some, <laughs> there was some beauty in the Mosaic Covenant because the people could have some relationship with God, the Jewish people, whereas the other nations had no relationship with God. At least by offering sacrifice, they could come somewhat near to God and pray to him and things. But now this is much better. So he does it gradually to help us appreciate the greater excellence of what we have now. And then when we get to heaven, we can say again, well, why did God wait so long for this? <laughs> well, we see some of the blessings now and we look forward to the rest. And in looking forward, he gives us opportunity to exercise faith. 
because now we trust more of the promises for the future, for a millennial kingdom, and then for the new heavens and new earth, and we exercise faith in him, and he's pleased with that. And there's something else. He gives his people opportunity to be part of his work. So um, the Jewish people, in the sacrifices, and then in fighting battles against their enemies and defeating them by trusting God, he gives us opportunity to be on the front line. And now in building the work of the church and advancing the kingdom or working for Center for Arizona Policy, he gives us opportunity to be part of his work, and there's a joy in that. And so if God did everything for us, we'd be slobs, <laughs> okay, and bored. But progressively through history, he gives us opportunity to obey him and trust in him, and we have joy in that, and we glorify him for it. So we pray. Okay. He works his purposes gradually over time through us, and he delights to do that. Gene? Work was. Go ahead. Without all that. Say, say it again. Um, it's good. It's on. It's on. I can hear you. The, uh, he gives us context. Yeah. Without the Old Testament, without seeing the history of the Jews before the rebellions, yep. without understanding uh, maybe the marriage metaphor, Jesus going to prepare a, a place for us in my Father's house or many mansions, yep. we wouldn't have the context to understand that and to understand how precious Christ's life was. Yeah. Um, without the Old Testament and this progressive revelation. So okay, good. I think that uh, it, it allows us to really understand how, how much greater Christ's work is. Good. And then uh, that gives us the power to reach And now when you're saying that, I'm thinking of something else. He sees fulfillment. We see the fulfillment of prophecy, and these sacrifices foreshadowed the work of Christ. So there's another thing. Okay, good, good. Oh, we can talk more about this, but we need to sing. So let's stand up and sing, and we'll be done. See you next week.